0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story.
0: In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: My guest today is R.A. Kislenko, and this week we're going to talk about the Soviet invasion of Berlin. Which, which, as you know, the Soviet came first to Berlin and we're going to discuss the road the soldiers took to Berlin this week. And of course, end with the victory parade in Stalingrad. But as always, how did you come to study this? you in general war history and World War II is in London, of course. Where did your interest become in this, in war history you know, of the 20th century?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me personally, it started with my family. My father fought the Second World War. Uh, My mom lived through the Second World War. So I I grew up instilled with uh, a lot of different things about the Second World War. They fought for different sides in different places, but um, that was a pretty constant narrative. And then, you know, became interested in history generally. Uh, But very specifically with uh, the Second World War because of that. And then also my own studies. I I pursued international relations uh, diplomatic history uh, and have done many, many things and specialized in other areas, too. But the Second World War is a bit of a gravitational pull uh, for me. I, I think a lot of the stories of the Second World War are not told. I know a lot of people say, you know, we've heard it all, but I would strongly disagree with that. There are different interpretations. A lot of missing components, uh, documents that haven't been made available. So I've been naturally intrigued uh, towards that. I I teach this stuff. I teach particularly about the about the Second World War and uh, the Soviet effort. Um, and then, of course, there is you know a, a component. I'm of Russian ancestry and all of those sort of things. But but really, it's got nothing to do much with flags. Uh, I think when you when you look at the Second World War and and you see uh its tremendous importance in every single sense of the word uh to human history not to mention the staggering loss of life um you know one has to stop and, and pay particular attention it's not to say other periods of history aren't important but this one is uh is extremely important it's shaped the world in which we live in so many uh incalculable ways And then, last but not least, it is that dimension of suffering. When when I first learned about the loss of life in the Soviet Union, I thought it was a mistake, right? I think like Mm -hmm. most of my undergraduate students, you know, you think they must have said something wrong, right? I've got that wrong, Um, and and that is something that's still with us today. I, I guarantee you, I could walk into almost any classroom, including my own, and ask people, you know, how many people died in the Second World War, and they'd probably Underestimate it. Uh, and that's particularly true when we look at the Soviet Union, right? The losses there. I was taught as a, an undergrad many, many years ago, you know, something in the neighborhood of, uh, of 10 to 15 million. And of course, now we've doubled that, right? Uh, cool. So that, that, that to me has always been intriguing. Um, as much as we do know about the Soviet war effort, there's so many things that we don't know. And it speaks fundamentally to our modern day relationship with, with Russia, frankly. This is, you know, the, the current war, uh, Russian war in Ukraine is very much shaped by World War II narratives, different narratives, uh, um, you know, ones that I don't support in any way. But, uh, you know, we're, we're basically seeing how the impact of the Second World War has shaped not just the global order, but very contemporary crises that we're dealing with in places like Ukraine. So, for me, it's been a lifelong draw in and in a passion, um, and I think it's super important that we have these kind of discussions, particularly about, uh, you know, others. Right? If you're American, um, you know, Americans don't generally regard much about the world in a lot of ways. Uh, from the Second World War, there's a narrative of victory, but they don't really calculate for other countries. Uh, and I'm sure that's true in other places, too. So for me, as an international historian, it's important to look at as many different narratives as possible, different countries and different people.
1: Mm. So let's begin with a little brief overview of the, that led up to the Soviet invasion of Germany. So let's begin. So if you may, you we can talk about, you know, from the Soviet interwar years.
0: Yeah, there's, there's of course endless amounts we could talk about. It, I, I always start with the interwar because it, it paints the picture of two really important things, the isolation of the Soviet Union and the international community, uh, which instilled, I mean, I think it was caused by, but then it also furthered a, a very deep sense of paranoia that the Soviets had with respect to every other country in some cases rightly so right as we're about to talk about the the German plans for the Soviet Union but um, so that meant that to a large degree the Soviet state in the interwar was a pariah It was not involved in international uh, uh, proceedings in many respects not a member of the league had very few bilateral uh, diplomatic um, recognitions with other countries Um, And all of that, of course, makes for a very complicated foreign policy, right, as we hit the Second World War. Uh, And then the second reason is that this also really, uh, of course, revolves a lot around uh, Joseph Stalin, who is, uh, you know, infamous in so many different ways, easily Mm -hmm. one of the greatest mass murderers in history and a ruthless dictator. Uh, despite some people's romanticization of him, um, because of the Second World War and, and Soviet victory, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a, a man who bled his country in many respects. was extraordinarily violent, um, and as a result, you know, he set the stage for the Second World War in many different respects. That's not in any way to to sort of you know suggest. Uh, uh, what Hitler is about to do or anything like that is, is justified or something ridiculous. But um, this is a very fragile state as the Second World War begins, despite its enormity and despite its tremendous military uh, potential. Uh, it's a state which is uh, weak in a lot of ways. Uh, that's demonstrated by the German invasion. And and much of that has to do with Stalin. I, I think especially Russians have neglected that narrative, right? They've sort of glossed over mm-hmm um those problems internal problems mm. so i i usually start there and and point out you know under under bolshevik rule and particularly stalin in the interwar period you had massive purges the so-called pogroms uh political you know social cultural uh purges killing approximately seven million people uh and then of course you had the the uh forced economic collectivization programs which led to amongst other things a tremendous famine in Ukraine, uh, tantamount to genocide, right? So, uh, and in, in that case, you're looking at at least another 10 million dead. So, um, you know, long before German soldiers ever stepped foot on the Soviet Union, you, you have lost something in the neighborhood of 15 million, uh, you know, on top of losses from the, the Soviets, uh, from the Bolshevik Revolution and, and the Civil War um and it's not just sort of a number they they were heavily targeted those losses particularly the, in the pogroms and the purges i they were heavily know, i targeted.
1: think it's a, especially poles were targeted as well as the enemy of the states
0: well there's lots there's a lot of ethnic minorities in the country that are that are purged right there's mass deportations there's uh, of course the gulags uh, the gulag archipelago begins um But, you know, at at its core, uh, I mean, everybody suffers in the Soviet state, but of course, very relevant to today, especially if you're Ukrainian, is the idea that this was targeting, uh, you know, the idea of a separate Ukraine, of Ukrainian nationalism uh, writ large. But at the end of the day, I always point out very relevant to the Second World War um those losses are unimaginable in any other country right let's be honest with the possible exception of a country like china you know uh uh, the the absorption of 10 to 15 million dead in in uh in less than 20 years is staggering right something the americans or brits have never really encountered um but even more relevant to the second world war is the the target of it meaning the, the purging of particular classes uh, and occupations, and and top of that list are the military. The Soviet military is ruthlessly purged in the interwar period uh, for no, you know, um, uh, for for really a very clear reason. It's it's not for for just sort of uh, laughs that Stalin goes after them. He is terrified that from within the Soviet military there may emerge a political rival, a mm. challenger. Right. And against the backdrop of Stalin rise to power, he saw fit to get rid of everybody. So uh, generals in that light are fair game. And that's why so many of them are purged. So many of the officer corps are purged. Mm-hmm. So what you have by the time and some really great historians, you know, about the Soviet era talk about this as a, as a priority for a reason. By the time you reach 1939 and then, of course, the German invasion in 1941, the Soviet military has been has been gutted. A lot of senior military men are no longer there. Mm -hmm. The officer corps, right? So as you go down that sort of system, the officer corps for men responsible for, you know, battalion level and company level uh, kind of uh, deployments, they are inexperienced. Uh, Many of them are reservists or have been called up for for war. So from a very, you know, uh, practical sense, if you like, this has a long-term and dire effect on the Soviet state. So the weakness of the Soviet Union that's evident to everybody in the first, you know, uh, a couple of years of the war, for me, it really has its genesis in the interwar period. It's Stalin's fault, you know, to put a, uh, a key point on it. Um, and and of course that's a huge failing. So yes, although he's going to emerge victorious and and everything else at the end of the war, we we can't gloss over the brutality of the regime in the interwar period mm-hmm. uh, and the animosities that it that it naturally fed in some of the constituent republics, right in the SSRs, uh, Belarus and Ukraine in particular. Um, you know, that, that, that shouldn't surprise anybody that at least some Ukrainians welcomed the Nazis as liberators, mm. uh, in, in 1941, right. When they come storming in. So I usually start there and it's for those two reasons. It's international isolation. It has no friends and allies fundamentally. Mm. Um, and it is, it's quite weak from within. And even though it has great industrial, uh, p- potential and has built a modern, uh, you know, uh, army to a large degree, it is not prepared in any way for what's about to come.
1: You mentioned the purging of generals, and I remember reading about Second World War recently where he writes about how the general circle, who we definitely are coming back to eventually, he wrote a farewell letter to his wife because he was sent into the Kremlin and he thought he was going to die, he thought he wouldn't come back because yeah. you know, he thought he was going to get purged himself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a very real fear. I mean, my students usually laugh for some reason. I think it's nervous laughter when I talk about those things because, of course, they can't imagine it. Living in a nice, you know, democratic uh, society like ours, um, they can't imagine the randomness of it all, right? The the mm. lawlessness of it all. But that's precisely what it was. So that's not an unusual account. Zhukov and others had to worry about their heads oh. because so many of their comrades met that fate. Right. Uh, And that that fear factor isn't just a sort of, you know, anecdote. It's uh, I I get really distressed when people say that it has a functional effect. So I do a lot on intelligence. Um, So imagine if you're a Soviet intelligence officer, your job is to find out truths. Right. Not not particular. Nice truths, not truths that the boss wants to hear but truths, right? The reality of what you and your nation can and cannot do, what's going on and so on. But in this system, especially with Stalin at the top, if you were to deliver news that was disagreeable to, mm-hmm. to anybody in that chain of command, particularly to the big boss in the Kremlin, your life is over,
1: mm-hmm.
0: flat out. So guess what happens, right? So, you know, I teach a course on intelligence and, and generally Soviet intelligence is quite capable from a technical vantage point. It's lacking in some respects, especially in communications intelligence. But you know, it's, it's, uh, it's well oiled, it's got some pretty smart people, whether you like them or not is another issue. But uh, uh, it's fundamentally corrupt, in sort of the same way that the Nazis will be fundamentally corrupt, because the boss doesn't want to hear your truths. So that's going to have a resounding effect on on Soviet preparations for the war. It's absolutely essential to understanding how Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, is pulled off uh, as an intelligence ploy. And again, all of this really comes back to Stalin and, and the hierarchy, right? Oh. It comes back to, to the Kremlin. Um, and it is there uh, that we need to always turn to understand the full scale of Russian failure in the beginning of the war. Uh, as much as we look to it for success in the latter half, but also to to the nature of the war to come, a war that uh, may have been inevitable. Us historians don't like the word inevitable. It's not a very useful thing for us. Um, but, but certainly, had they been better prepared, and that means had better leadership, uh, you could argue that they probably wouldn't have suffered quite so much as they're about to. So mm-hmm. a lot of this is self-inflicted, and we sometimes gloss over that in the narrative of the Second World War.
1: Speaking of show, telling the truth to Stalin, you know there was sometimes intelligence would wait hours, the whole day or days even to tell the truth
0: because they were so nervous in case
1: that was the last thing that it would do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Stalin, we have documents, you know, Stalin in his own hand, dismissing intelligence report. Uh, from, you know, institutions that he relied upon, right? So the NKVD, political intelligence, GRU, military intelligence, you know, some really fantastic intelligence networks and occupied uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere, utterly disregards them. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, when you're doing an analysis of this kind of nature, uh, it's the same in any other country. You have to look at the leadership. You have to be able to look at, at the mechanics of the state uh, to get that sort of, you know, full uh, view, we do that with other countries. Um, there is a difficulty, and, and the difficulty is in part uh, documentation. The, the the Russian state today, as well as the Soviet state during uh, most of the 20th century, you know, d- doesn't really play nice with its documents, right? So while a lot of documents have come out, uh, we're still missing a lot, and Putin's regime is not likely to assist. Um, but then, secondly, Russians, especially today, and and you know, I'm ethnically Russian. I come from a Russian family. Um, you know, it's not true of all Russians, of course, but there is a, a difficulty in understanding uh, victory, right? On the one hand, this tremendous, uh, almost unimaginable sacrifice and victory that the Soviet Union will achieve, um, and the ruthless, despotic, you know, very cruel nature. Uh, of that state both in Mm. and outside of the Soviet Union Mm. Um, and a lot of people struggle with that narrative I I know because they often bark at me right Mm. (laughs) when they when they hear or see me talk about that and say how can you talk about the great patriotic war and then talk about rape and murder by Soviet soldiers and of course to me I say well those are part and parcel of the same thing it doesn't you know change the fact that they both happen Um, so that's a difficulty right a lot of people today have a hard time reconciling that image of Stalin as a victor uh, against, you know, his really quite inept and often uh, a brutally bad leadership uh, and the tremendous cruelty of the state.
1: So let's talk about the invasion briefly, and the, of course the Battle of Stalingrad so of uh, Operation Barbarossa. And um, yeah. before I want to go into Stalingrad, I want to know because you know as you know, they've got the race. That's Leningrad, sorry, at the to the ground. But let us say if they, they had not gone for Stalingrad, which was, you know, the one when, when they went. to, If they went to the Battle of if it was the Battle of Moscow, for example, would would that have been an a different outcome, or would that would it be the same outcome? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a,
0: it's of course really difficult to deal with counterfactual uh, history. I know what you mean um yeah for sure i mean i i in in a you know even though we can't really go there counterfactuals are not what we do i'll go there uh, and i'll tell you it's it's impossible for for me to imagine that uh stalingrad you know is is anything but the worst military mistake the germans ever made it's you know when when i teach world war ii history there are Of course, lots to cover, but, um, you know, three main campaigns, three main turning points that I think most military and diplomatic historians would agree to. El Alamein in North Africa, uh, Battle of Midway in the Pacific um, and Stalingrad. And of those three, Stalingrad is by far the most uh, important in a lot of ways, just by virtue of what it does to the German army in Mm. terms of its decimation. Uh, and in terms of the Soviets, uh, in in you know coming back from a near certain defeat, so that leads to your question, which is you know was Stalingrad worth it? Absolutely not. I mean, the German invasion plan, you know, Barbarossa uh, accounted for, as I'm sure you know, three broad uh, movements, right? A north, the middle, and a south. Um, the northern target was Leningrad, the second biggest city, modern day Saint Petersburg. Uh, extremely important, not just for its location but for its uh, you know it, its portent to, to Russian culture and to politics and so on um, and then Moscow as the the nerve center, the uh, government center also very important and then a third drive uh, at least initially aimed at the caucuses broadly defined right and that was was principally and economically, uh, designs, uh, military for, for
1: oil, right? For resources For oil,
0: yeah, and also to sever uh, um, you know the Soviets' uh, breadbasket, right? To cut off Ukraine yeah. uh, and to basically steal all the food, as it were, and all the other resources and then yes, eventually drive down you know, as far as you can uh, Baku is the ultimate destination, so you have access to the Caspian, and therefore you cut off oil and gas supplies, so that's the logic of it where Stalingrad comes in is that even with unsuccessful sieges at both Moscow and, and Leningrad, um, you know Hitler makes a fateful decision to go after that one city. There's different interpretations. Some people said he did it, you know, principally out of a stupid, you know, arrogance because it bore the name of his rival, right? I, I don't think that's probably the only calculation there, even for Hitler, but certainly something to mention. Um, others, I think, a little bit more factually point out that it is really the last basis in that region for a main uh, encampment of the Soviet army, right? That's kind of like the, the last stand of the Soviet army uh, has withdrawn to near or or in Salingrad. And, and then, of course, it's on the Volga River, right? So once you, you control the Volga and you can get past the Volga, there's nothing uh, basically to stop you from a conquest of the country um potentially quite valid reasons but but not at the expense that is about to unfold mm-hmm. so many people therefore kick in and say well ultimately it is a bit of a distraction you should have focused principally on on you know securing that southern uh flank the the caucasus and and ukraine in particular um that makes the city less important so when when the the, the command decision comes uh to go to stalingrad Uh, It is basically sealing a fate, right, of the German army. They're now committed to a very different enterprise. They're still Mm -hmm. at Moscow and they're still at Leningrad. Mm -hmm. And it's not going terribly well, right, contrary to their narrative. They're supposed to be in Moscow inside four months. uh, And, of course, that doesn't happen. Uh, So in that sense, a lot of historians would say, well, that was a real distraction. And and it becomes even worse when famously uh, Hitler denies the German army there uh, the Requests to withdraw when things go really horribly, horribly wrong, and that that's going to seal their fate with you know tremendous losses, right? You know, over three hundred thousand are taken prisoner. This is a a, a a massive army. The the greatest loss of life uh, for the Germans occurs there, right? In in terms of their their forces and their depletion. So, in that way, it is the most significant turning point. Uh, and I could go on and on, right? It has a tremendous uh, effect on morale and the psychology of the Soviet Union being able to put back. It speaks fundamentally to Stalin and, and communist narratives about the people's struggle uh, because the people struggled, right? This isn't just an army that defends oh. Stalingrad, right? it's a hornet's nest of civilians. Uh, the city is, as I, I, I'm sure you know, the city is absolutely leveled. Oh. There's nothing worth fighting for. Um, And again, that speaks to German callousness and arrogance. Uh, I know some military historians that would argue the biggest mistake the Germans made was not just trying to take the city, but by destroying the city, because they created perfect conditions for the resistance that follows, right? It's a bunch of rubble from which you have snipers and sappers and, and you know, street to street fighting. And that that rendered German heavy equipment, the, the you know, the, the big focus of the German armed forces was always its air force and its tank corps. Mm. And neither of those are terribly useful in Stalingrad because you've created this rat's nest. Mm. Um, so from start to finish, this is a disaster uh, of German military planning. Uh, and it is, you know, again, um, Stalin aside, monstrous man that he was, uh, the stand there serves exactly that purpose, albeit at the price of millions of dead, which is to have a resolute uh, defense of, of a Soviet city, uh, drain the German army, and then launch a, a massive counteroffensive. Mm-hmm. So in the world of World War II, uh, you know, there's nothing really more important than Stalingrad. And and the loss of life there is, is of course, testament to that. And a,
1: a horrible thing that this might be to say. He just, Stalin was lucky that there were so many people living in the country that he, he could just send, send, you know, next wave after wave after wave to defend yeah, Stalingrad yeah. and in general, you know, send soldiers to like cow for, for slaughter, you know, just send, in, uh, defend the city. And, and he, he was really lucky that there were so many people living. I don't, I don't know if yeah. that's the right word for it, but you know. That he basically had soldiers they couldn't retreat as well as know because if yeah. they would try to retreat, and sorry, I'm for doing another analogy here. And very soon, you know, if they try to retreat, this they would be shot. And this is what this. see, yeah, like- and I'm sorry again for doing an, an analogy, I do love doing analogies in this podcast. So, you know, this is what happened in Russia today as well. We discussed this in before the. Before the recording, that it's hard not to see the third right in Russia today because, or Soviet Union in Russia today, because you know, soldiers have been shot if they're trying to retreat in the battle of Ukraine that is going on right now, and it's it's crazy that it's still happening in 2023.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, have a, I have a friend here who's a military man by nature and an expert uh, on war, uh, uh, a very senior and former commander. Um, and you know he drew that out months ago. That that you know you would think that the Russians may have learned something from the Second World War in terms of strategic deployments or whatever else. But uh, I get your parallel, and and of course there are a lot of things that don't serve that analogy. But at its core, you're right. This is a a, a, a commitment. It's a war of attrition like no other nation would or could fight. Right. That the Soviets are prepared to grind you down by way of uh, the expending their own lives, something that, of course, Americans and British and and so on soldiers would never think of. Right. That's the exact opposite of military doctrine. Um, but that speaks, again, to the nature of the system. It speaks to the the mindset of Stalin, who could not possibly care less about individual lives. Right. You know that he's famous for saying one one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, Uh, which whether it's true or not is pretty much an epitaph for him. Um, And in that light, you know, the defense is something not even the Germans could have expected. So I always point out German intelligence, you know, on, on the eve of Barbarossa is not by any means great. They make a lot of mistakes. Uh, the, the principal unit that is responsible for is famed for making miscalculations about, you know, the fighting spirit of the Russians and so on, uh, the numbers and so on. Uh, but in, in I suppose, fairness to them, they couldn't have possibly calculated for the willingness of the Soviets to spend so many lives in defense of anything, right? So even if you think they're not human, if you think they're uh it still doesn't calculate for how tenaciously this nation is prepared to fight. Uh, and you're right. What Stalin does is he finds a lot of reserves, and it's not accidental. They, they, those reserves are pulled principally from the east uh, Siberia, uh, you know, east of the Urals, uh, because just before the German invasion, the Soviets sign a neutrality pact with Japan, mm. <laughs> which is important. People often, you know, skip over that that little fact. But that the Japanese, of course, interested in a southward drive of their own. Uh, but what that does for the Soviet Union is that it frees up large divisions that were stationed in Manchuria and Siberia, uh, and they are able to be redeployed, uh, to here something that the German intelligence units, um, never really accounted for. They didn't have a good understanding of Soviet army size or the reservists. So they're astonished. German soldiers are astonished when they see new recruits coming in and you hit it right on the head, uh, you know, there is some Hollywood movies like Enemy at the Gates and so on, which are a bit, you know, uh, flowery in some respects. But they show that quite well. They they show the the inexperienced nature of Soviet defenses, mm-hmm. the, the men at the Soviet defenses, uh, how poorly equipped they were and, and how they're stationed. They're just basically uh, cattle, as we say. They're mm-hmm. just animals to the slaughter. Uh, and the whole idea is just simply to absorb the brunt of the German offensive, waste their resources, tire them out. Uh, that's a horrible military strategy, but it is at the core of the Soviet defense strategy throughout World War II, particularly at Stalingrad. And yeah, it looks like Putin uh, and his generals haven't really strayed too much from that narrative.
1: Hmm. So let's, of course, talk about the German retreat. And before, but before we do that, I want to talk about
0: POWs,
1: prisoners of wars yeah because of, as you know both Germans get some Soviet prisoners of war and of course the Soviets get a lots of German prisoners of war but it's quite horrendous what happened on both sides because if you as you know if you were a, a Soviet prisoner of war Stalin looked that you as a traitor to the nation and then you came back you were sent to the gulags so yeah. you are not here for a good either way you were not here for a good time on either
0: side if you were a
1: pow yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think I I I, I never want to uh, you know speak out of turn, but uh, it is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the highest or one of the highest mortality rates uh, in military calculations in the Second World War is to be a, a Soviet prisoner of Germany or a German prisoner of the Soviet Union, and it speaks fundamentally to the bloodlust uh, between the two. This is a unique war. I always teach about you know, World War II, in effect, as separate wars, um, meaning that, you know, how the allies fight it, not that it's pleasant ever there, either Western allies, mm. but, but they're exposed to a very different kind of war than the Soviet Union is, and that's going to be critical, right? This is ingrained mm. in the Soviet mentality, even modern-day Russia. This is a war of blood. This is a war of race. This is a, a, an existential war. So the brutality that is shown uh, by first Germans to the Soviets is is more than echoed by the Soviets to the Germans when the tides turn of war. Uh, and I think that you know speaks fundamentally to the nature of World War II there. Um, if I'm not mistaken, in the first uh, two weeks of the German invasion, there's already a million, near a million dead and a million missing amongst the Red Army, which are losses that are you know what five times what the americans lose in the entire course of the second world war right so that's a little factoid that speaks again fundamentally to the nature of the war uh and most of those prisoners um are uh dead within a few weeks if I'm not mistaken most russian prisoners taken by the germans in the first few weeks of barbarossa uh have a, an extraordinary mortality rate they're they're amongst the first to be subjected to you know to the death camps right again we often skip that discussion over, uh, but a lot of the same brutalities that are inflicted upon Jewish people and the Roma and so on, uh, they're also reserved for Soviet prisoners of war. I've lived in and worked in those camps, especially uh, uh, in Germany uh, and taught there. And, you know, it's extremely well-documented. There's separate camps, you know, fundamentally in places like Bagen-Belsen or Sachsenhausen where there were, you know, unique provisions just for Soviet soldiers. Uh, So the mortality rate is staggering. And of course, what it does is even if they don't know the numbers, the Soviets are well aware of what's happening. Uh, So they're going to unleash hell when it's when the tides turn and they're going to be equally as vicious. Uh, So if I'm not, again, not mistaken, I think it's like a 70 percent, you know, casualty rates amongst prisoners of war. If you're taken Mm -hmm. by the Russians at the end Uh, and that kind of brutality is is sadly the norm in that Eastern front, right? This is hell on earth. Uh, Not that war was fun anywhere else. Um, And that's evident right from the get go, right from the very beginning. But, but again, I often say, well, what would you expect, you know, from the Nazis? I mean, after all, this is the same, you know, invasion, the same army that unleashes Einsatzgruppen and, and, you know, specific killing units to destroy civilian populations, right? This is a war of blood. And in their mind, uh, many Germans' minds, uh, the Slavic peoples in general, but particularly Russians, Ukrainians, communists, uh, they were the lowest of the low. They were subhuman. So, you know, we have legendary tales of, of, you know, mass executions of not just civilians, but of soldiers, the raising, of course, of entire countries, you know, how how many tens of thousands of towns and villages were destroyed. In a way that the Germans didn't do it in the Western uh, areas of Europe, right? As brutal as their occupation was, so in that light, the loss of life amongst prisoners of war is 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 sadly to be expected, right? They are nothing more than than waste, uh, and uh, the Germans start it, and the Russians finish it in a very similar fashion. Hmm. So,
1: uh, but I see no not all not all the Soviet POWs. So- there some were sent and used as soldiers for the Ge- fighting for the German side as well in in Greece and on the Western Front. I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, there are a lot of uh, defections. Uh, they actually occur the other way too, right? We often forget that some, especially non-German allies of the Nazis, defected, right? Some, mm. you know, people from Polish and other countries that had signed up with the Nazis. Uh, Actually, were important to try to uh, give intelligence in advance of the invasion. But yeah, you you certainly have a a number of uh, people. There are differing estimates on it, of course, and different interpretations. But in places like Poland and in the Ukraine, um, some people signed up with the Nazis and then others defected to the Nazis. Uh, there were also some expatriates, uh, Russians people that had fled the Bolshevik Revolution, identified as White Russian, living throughout many of uh, of Europe's countries, and they signed up, you know, for it as well. You have, of course, you know, some Finns, you have Frenchmen. Uh, it shocks people, but there there was quite a large international component. The, the, uh, there wasn't even a
1: Scandinavian unit. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely, right and not necessarily all deployed in the Eastern Front, but. You know, tens of thousands and sometimes far more than that signed up for the Nazis because they appeared to be victorious. And also they were speaking a language in their virulent anti-Semitism and anti-communist uh, perspectives that a lot of people liked. Right. Uh, you know, hating Jewish people and hating communists was not unique to Germany. So, yeah, there were people. And, and of course, that is uh, not just a historical fact, but it. Oh something that isn't part of the modern narrative. Putin has gone out of his way to talk about Ukraine as being complicit with the Nazi invasion, right He brings up Stefan Bandera, the famous you know uh, uh, Ukrainian leader and nationalist who uh, supported um, you know the Nazis to a large degree. And that's why he gets away with these kind of comments that Ukraine is full of fascists and so on—utter nonsense in the in the modern day, uh, you know, reality of it. Um, but it has long-lasting effect because, you know, Putin certainly remembers, and I, I think a lot of Russians do, whether they're right about it or not you know they remember uh german soldiers being welcomed into ukrainian towns right there's images of girls you know throwing flowers at them mm-hmm. and breaking bread with them and so on those are those are real i think that's got to be said but they're distortive right because the germans quickly massacre them uh and there's you know fierce resistance that arises in places like ukraine to the germans uh because the germans are stupid enough to make this a blood war instead mm-hmm. of of making it a military campaign first and foremost they they begin their extermination and their brutality right away uh so yeah there are people that went over to the other side i've actually interviewed some of them in the course of my life uh many of them will tell you the same thing that they didn't know what else to do uh that they were simply trying to survive um you know that's quite possible they may have been ideologically inclined and so on but uh I, I I the reason I don't make so much out of it is because of course they're they're a relatively small number compared to those that stay and fight. Uh and in the Russian experience, when you're talking about thirty million dead, uh the sacrifice of, of the people who fight against Nazism is is more important.
1: Hmm. So of course I talked about how the battle turned around after Standard Oil. Just as you know that is Chance a turning point at least on the eastern front of the war. But as you know, the, the the Russians they had a scorched earth, earth policy. So when the Red Germans retreated, it wasn't only bad for them, right? It was also. But what was it like for the Soviets as well, going back through the scorched earth that they they themselves set fire on, on, on while, while earlier?
0: Yeah, it's it's horrific. You know, it's absolutely horrific. And again, the Germans did not anticipate that. Um, why is a good question? Because of course, this was a time-honored tradition in Russian military uh, strategy. Yeah. They they did a very similar thing when Napoleon invaded in 1812, uh, and again in World War One. Um, so yeah, that that is the defensive strip mentality of the Soviets. They they use that throughout uh, the war, right? Is to withdraw from an area, taking full advantage of the size of their country. Baiting the adversary, in this case the Germans, further in, exposing their lines of communication and support, dragging them further and further, and making them vulnerable, and then fighting in basically in uh, in different lines. Right there's the defensive military strategy. You fight here, and then you have a series of lines moving backwards. Uh, each one designs not necessarily to withhold the enemy, but to tire the enemy, right, mm-hmm. to make them exhausted. And that had tremendous success. But of course, you have to be willing to pay the price. That kind of strategy entails burning your land to the ground. Uh, in the case of the Second World War, it also requires something that has not really ever been done before, certainly not on the scale, which is to move everything that's worth keeping, industrial infrastructure, resources, you name it, uh, you know, withdrawing it from the area of uh, of invasion and occupation and reestablishing it behind safer lines, which is precisely what the Soviets do. Mm. So remarkably, and I, I don't think anybody, including the Soviets, uh, knew that they would be able to pull that off. But that's exactly what they did. I always tell my students it's the rough equivalent of taking everything from where we live here in southern Ontario mm. and transplanting it back in Manitoba. Right The distance of a thousand kilometers away, right Picking up rail lines and factories and reassembling it. Uh, it's a remarkable moment. and it's it's precisely because of that that the Soviets are able to, you know, be like a phoenix from the ashes, right? They come back from defeat because they've managed to 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 save so much of their their industry in Western Russia. Now, when they push back out, you know, the, the consequences, of course, they, they see barren fields that haven't been properly you know, tilled during German occupation, mm. uh, mass starvation, of course. Uh, and so it is a very difficult enterprise. Um, it, the Soviets move much quicker in a lot of ways. And, of course, a lot of that industrial and even agricultural infrastructure has shifted to other parts of the Soviet state. Right. So they they you know have some capacity to feed their men. Uh, but I'll also point out. Listen, if you get into the the weeds of World War II and you you study the uh sorry, the Soviet soldier, your average you know rifleman, for example, uh, they are remarkable characters, right? They are tough guys in in the classic sense of the word. They travel lightly. Uh, for the most part, they have very few provisions. They don't eat very much. They don't drink very much. They're, you know, it's sort of uh, uh, staples, right? It's black to
1: to, 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 to to like camel, like...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these guys are these these are remarkable. They they live on kasha, you know, the grain uh, cereal, if you like, and and chai tea, and and they keep moving. So in that light, you know, the mass destruction that that was theirs to begin, and then Germans, of course, by virtue of their occupation, yeah. um, you know, it does have a, a an effect. But the the Soviet Union has done something unbelievably remarkable and frankly unprecedented, which is to rebuild its war effort uh in the midst of almost certain defeat right and and that's from an industrial as well as an agricultural perspective that's where some people sing the praises of stalin i would never do that personally but uh i'd i'd sing the praises of the soviet people right and their willingness and and tenacity to fight and then to rebuild uh but yeah you're right by the time they start marching through those those places are are in many cases barren now
1: something of course that is essential and as a I'm pretty sure it's not taught in Russian schools today when this comes to mind. As I'm sure you know what I'm talking about now is the allied aid that happened during the the taking back territory after Stalin yeah. coming back. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the essential, because it was quite essential to Soviet victory as well. That, of course, like I said, it's not taught in Soviet schools today. That's kind of forgotten about Yeah, the allied I mean- aid to Soviet Union.
0: It was, which is it's such a great question because it's something that is really neglected. I, I talk about it a lot whenever I can because it's an important narrative. It's an essential narrative. Uh beginning in October of 1941, so just a few months after the German invasion, uh, the Roosevelt administration extends Lend Lease, right? The very famous uh economic and military program uh to the Soviet Union. It's already been enacted for China and for the United Kingdom, for Canada as well. Uh, And it is basically, you know, it's a a wonderfully illegal thing, right? It's technically illegal under neutrality acts in the United States uh, for the government to deal with protagonists of any sort. But uh, because Roosevelt is Roosevelt, he he is prepared to challenge his own laws uh, and lend lease does what it says. It's lending or leasing military equipment. It's kind of when you get right down to it, it's basically the Americans preparing to give you bullets. With the request that eventually you give them back,
1: mm-hmm. as if
0: you're gonna go and retrieve them from enemy bodies and sort of mm-hmm. you know give them back to you. Now there are economic stipulations, you gotta pay back money and so on. But what it does for the Soviet Union is is remarkable. Uh by the end of the war, it's about eleven billion dollars, which is you know not nearly as much mm-hmm. as other countries, but still a lot.
1: Uh, which really, a lot if you don't have $11 million, it's,
0: there you go. It's, <laughs> it's a lot more than you think if you're in the midst of defeat and, and you don't have a very vibrant economy to begin with, but the real kicker isn't just lend lease itself that lasts throughout the war technically, uh, because by, by 1943, certainly Soviet factories have, you know, sort of, uh, uh come back, right. With that movement of raw materials and personnel and equipment, um, uh, so they're able to manufacture a lot of the stuff that they couldn't. So really, the the big critical point is, is between late 1941 and, and sort of mid-1943, a good chunk of the war. And it's there where the Americans end up giving them ridiculous numbers. I think it's 10,000 tanks, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I read once it's something like 700,000 military vehicles. Like trucks and equipment. That's a monstrous sum, not to mention, uh, you know, other military equipment and money itself. So uh, the reason it's so important is we have documents of Stalin himself, like the boss, uh, commenting, uh, particularly at at some of the peace conferences, some of the conferences that unfold in World War II. You know, making public comments about how grateful he is to the United States, making uh, private comments to, you know, the Politburo and others, how they couldn't have won without them. Uh, And then that's echoed by guys like Nikita Khrushchev, right, his uh, uh, eventual successor, who was at Stalingrad, amongst other places. And he said, listen, in the first stages of the war we were done if it was not for lend-lease. So this isn't abstract. It's not sort of, you know, mixing the numbers and having different interpretations. But that two-year period, lend-lease is really important to the Soviet state. We don't know if they could have survived, might have survived without it. That's a hypothetical. Uh, but it is something that needs to be addressed. Um, and of course, the reason it's not, you and I both know, right? That That's hmm. not a good narrative for Stalin and victory. That's certainly not something the communists ever want to admit, particularly as the Cold War dawns in 1945 moving forward. And Russians today, you know, uh, they don't want to talk about it or think about it because it undermines this narrative of the great patriotic struggle and, and that sense of we did it alone. Mm. Uh, which to some degree they're entitled to. I'm the first to acknowledge the sacrifice of the Soviet Union and its peoples has no equal, uh, but that doesn't make for good history, right? We have to look mm. at those little important factoids and lend-lease is critical. Uh, and then, yeah, as, as I think you alluded to, they get they get also benefits, if you like, by virtue of Western political leaders, Churchill and Roosevelt in particular, um, and the way the end uh, of the war comes about, like there's a lot of devil in the details, right, as, as to how that war progresses and precisely where the war is going to end. Uh, ultimately, what, what Roosevelt called spheres of influence, a very loose idea, uh, is, is borne by the armies themselves, right? So it's all a question of how fast and how far your army can get. So in the absence of any sort of concrete uh, plans or a possibility of uh, something different, uh, that favors the Soviets, because, of course, the Soviets are, you know, in a headlong rush to get as far and as fast as they can, including to Berlin and potentially beyond Uh and sometimes people say, well, you know, that we can't prove that. We can prove that pretty easily. Uh, in, in, in 1945, Stalin uh, met Avril Harriman, a famous American diplomat who spoke fluent Russian. Uh, and Harriman uh, said to him, you know, Comrade Stalin, congratulations on making it to Berlin. And without hesitation, Stalin said, Tsar Alexander made it to Paris. You know, in reference to to 1812. So I I think there's little doubt that Stalin intended on getting as fast and as far as he can, in part for selfish reasons, gaining territory and and ideological conformity and all that stuff. But also in the sense of making uh, some sense of repayment to the Soviet Union. Right. Their their loss is so high, their costs so great that to him uh there was a fundamental requirement to grab as much as possible at any cost, including, mm-hmm. you know, horrible, horrible damage inflicted upon Eastern Europe as the Soviets come. And mm-hmm. um, there I don't try
1: to look it up, but I remember reading Hitler and Stalin a while last year where there was a joke, I don't remember when this was, but where a Soviet I don't I don't remember exactly how it goes, but where a Soviet soldier passes a German soldier and they don't don't know if it's either Germans. They say something, but they don't know if it's either German or Soviet soldier. I learned that yeah. line.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're in effect the same, right? Is that what you're
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, listen from a vantage point of being, you know, many people in Eastern Europe, Poles and others, there's not much of a difference. And Russians do not like to talk about this because it's it undermines that narrative, right, yeah. of victory and of liberation. I just argue that you can have two things at the same time you can be victorious and a liberator uh in many respects and a great soldier and you know all of that sort of stuff but still inflict an awful lot of suffering and damage in the process uh but yeah that is precisely what happens and and again i'm the first to to acknowledge particularly when you come to some of the atrocities that the red army will commit on its way into germany um it's never to, to validate it. Would, I would never try, and nobody should try to, you know, justify it or make sense of it or anything like that. But putting it in a context, I think you can understand, right, why why anybody would do the stuff that the Red Army is going to do. Mm-hmm. It's in part indoctrination. It's in part the orders that they've been given by their commanders, by you know apparatchiks, bureaucrats, and, and leaders all the way up to Stalin, and it's also revenge you know for the the loss of life that has been like no no other in the history of humanity don't forget that some of these russian soldiers weren't uh you you know fully aware that their families were alive Hmm. right that they had witnessed you know one in four i think is the average right so you know in in a group of four men one's dead every day um you know, that that is, again, no justification for rape and murder and brutality, but you, I think any objective observer could see, you know, in the chaos that is uh, is World War II, that that is, uh, unfortunately, a very natural and, and human response, right? And again, I would not justify it. I don't think anybody should, but we do need to explain to some degree uh, the context in which it happened.
1: We are, of course, going to come back to the rape and the atrocities committed by soldiers, Soviet soldiers very soon, but I want to talk about the Soviet invasion of Poland right now. As another, yeah. as you know, the not Ludendorff that was the first one, the Ribbentrop-Molotov line, as you know, well, the, in 1939 was established, but it later broke in under uh, Operation by yeah. Russia. But yeah. you know, so let's talk about taking back not just the Ribb, not, not just the Ribbentrop line, but you know, Poland as a whole.
0: Yeah, well, the, you know, Poland had always been, of course, problematic from the Soviet perspective, mm-hmm. right, uh, you know, going way back into history, mm-hmm. the, the whole idea of Poland as an agitator, right, Poland as a kingdom, the Lithuanian-Polish kingdom had, had been trouble for Russia. Uh, and then, of course, in a much more modern incarnation, Poland was uh, reconstituted in part out of the Russian Empire, right, the mm-hmm. ancient kingdom of Poland as an independent state. So, you know, that that has the sort of backdrop for Stalin's decision to make a deal with Germany on the eve of World War II, the um, von ribbentrop Molotov pact Nazi-Soviet-Pact. And I, I always think it's important to point out the why. Part, right, there are different yeah. motivations, but the, you know the Soviets engage in this principally to, yes, of course, gain territory and spread their ideology, but principally it's out of a mortal fear. That's what I mentioned to you earlier. This is a deeply insecure state. It's been invaded through the Western corridor repeatedly, uh, and so for them, any amount of space between the West, broadly defined, and uh, and and the Russian heartland is important. And that's the paradox of Russia. For the biggest country in the world, most of the vital stuff is very close to Europe, right? It's, you know, much closer than the rest. So, you know, it was a natural strategic design on their part. It was vicious. um, And it was also designed in part to buy time, right? We often forget that Stalin wasn't entirely stupid. He understood that a war with Germany was quite likely, but he wanted it on his terms. So I, I think most Soviet historians would agree that, in addition to buying space, the von, Robert, von Ribbentrop Molotov Pact was designed to buy time, so that the Soviet army could rehabilitate, especially after the purges, right, which we talked about earlier. You know, retrain, reformulate the army, get it ready for action. I, I think there's little debate today that Stalin had invasion plans for Germany. Uh, it's just that the Germans beat them to it, right? So this, this, both sides kind of anticipated the war. And in that light, Poland became the natural dividing place. Neither Germany or Russia respected or acknowledged Polish independence. Uh, so, of course, as you know, that line was supposed to be roughly in half. But uh, just after the German invasion, September 1st, 1939, uh, the Soviets will invade uh, September 17th. So two weeks later, they come in from the east which is an absolute atrocity, a a brutal uh, uh, act in so many ways, a betrayal of, you know, Poland and the Soviet Union had fought a border war in the early 1920s. They didn't like each other. Uh, But there was still this sense of a Slavic camaraderie or whatever for some people. And, of course, many Poles, when the Germans invaded, went east, right, thinking that they might get some sort of, you know, respite or aid from the Soviet Union, only to be confronted with a Soviet invasion. Uh, And then although the line changes, right, the central government of uh, Poland becomes, you know, German controlled, that's because the Germans and the Soviets make deals as the invasion Mm. unfolds. So the Soviets take, for example, Lithuania as part of their, you know, uh, prizes from the war. (laughs) They invade Finland, as you know, Uh, and then the Germans take more Poland. Um, but the reason it's so important is because Stalin's approach is made very clear. We don't have to wait until 1944-45 mm. when the Soviet army is advancing in Poland to know what they're going to do. We see it right away in 1940. And most famously, as I'm sure you're well aware of, is Katyn, right? Mm. The 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 massacre of thousands of Polish officers. Uh, originally blamed on the Nazis, but proved forensically as well as through documents many years later to be uh, uh, the act of the NKVD and Russian military. So you know, so much for your Slavic brotherhood, right? So the the, yeah. the Russians have no intention of allowing for an independent Poland. Uh, as early as 1939, they don't they don't need to wait, um, and that does speak volumes about their approach. Come later in the war, mm. so that approach later in the war. Uh, is itself a, a monstrous example it It is debated. I gather you're referring to in particular you know the the siege of Warsaw yeah uh, as they push across the border. Um, it is debated right so I I, I I wouldn't be a very good historian if I sort of gave you one narrative only. Uh, some non-russian historians have argued that the 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 Russians didn't launch an an assault to save the Polish home army operating in Warsaw. Or, of course, Jewish people in the infamous ghetto when they rise up uh, in advance of the Red Army coming. Uh, And the reason that they didn't do it is in a conventional narrative. It's because Stalin wanted to exhaust uh, Polish uh, independence, wanted to have as many Poles killed as possible before his own army came in with the intention of occupying it ruthlessly. Uh, That's always an equation, right? We are talking about Stalin. So you know, right off of the bat, it's very likely that Stalin had no respect and regard for those people couldn't care let why would he he' spent millions of his own soldiers fighting this war. It's not like all of a sudden he's going to care about you know polish jews or 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 the home army uh so that is in part true, but there is another narrative, and some military historians would argue. It made sense to not invade Warsaw to not attack Warsaw, uh, at least not initially. And and the sense for that is that there was uh, the the Red Army was still exposed to a reasonably uh, capable German army in Pomerania in the in in uh, in the north, right to the north of Warsaw, in in Mm. German and Polish territory, uh, and that it needed to consolidate before it could move forward, right. And that was actually the advice of Chukov and, and others who said you know, we got to wait. We, we, we're going to expose ourselves if we don't. And, and those same historians would bring up that there were relief attempts. There were a couple of, uh, albeit small-scale advances uh, by the Red Army during that, that six-month, you know, hiatus or uh, waiting period. Uh, and also air relief, right? They tried to drop supplies and so on. So, uh, I mean, personally, I think the first is likely truer, right? right. I, I, I can't imagine that Stalin really cared at all uh, about you know polish citizens or the defense of warsaw uh i think soviet intelligence made it clear that the german defenses there were stronger than anticipated so from a russian perspective it made sense to wait it out uh, and the suffering of polish people was never a primary concern why would you think it would be mm-hmm. right from from this guy and from this nation uh but I, I I think we also need to consider that it's not just that heartlessness and callousness it's also this strategic concern. Don't forget Russian forces repeatedly this This needs to be said you know from the gates of Stalingrad and moscow and and uh, and eventually Leningrad as they push back um you know, Soviet strategy was always this defensive uh, a cycle, right? We have lines of defense. We exhaust the enemy as they come to it. We spend a great deal of life, but ultimately we drain our foe. And then they launched counteroffenses. So the the history of World War II for the Soviets is always a series of counteroffensive, uh, even when they weren't really capable of launching them. Stalin was famous for launching counteroffenses, uh, even at Stalingrad and at Moscow, Um you know, with small numbers, relatively small numbers, right? And that mm-hmm. that was designed to catch the enemy off guard, keep them, you know, uh, uh, at bay. Uh, so by the time you reach Warsaw, you know, the the, the principal commanders, uh, Kornief, uh, who leads the Ukrainian Front, and and uh, Zhukov in command of the Belarusian Front, the two major armies of the Soviet uh, Red um, Army. If I,
1: if I may interrupt you for a second, I think it's also worth mentioning. I believe it was Warsaw that the Nazis burned. To the ground before the treatment
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So you know, from their perspectives, you you. And again, I'm not apologizing. I'm not justifying anything. But you know, their first job is to think about their victory, right? They they are in a race to Berlin ordered by the boss and at, at the, you know, at the end of a tremendous period of suffering for their people, they are not stopping to consider individual countries or the lives of foreigners. That's just not their top priority, but they, they are concerned about overexposing themselves. So even with their huge numbers, right. By this point, I think it's what uh, 7 million in under gun, like 7 million Russian soldiers in the red army that are actual fighting with reservists, that will eventually pump it up to nearly 12 million, the biggest army the world has ever seen. Uh, but there's still dangers of setbacks. And and that's because the, the history until that date in the Second World War was precisely that. The Soviets advanced, but then would get pushed back. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kursk is a good example, right? The famous tank battle at Kursk, which is ultimately a Soviet victory. Uh, in the initial parts, it's a German counteroffensive. And then the Russians launch an attack and they get beat. They lost 600,000 men in counter offenses, uh, in that area. So, you know, if you reach Warsaw, you're pretty excited about the potential for victory. You're almost certain it's at hand, uh, but you still don't want to expose your soldiers. Mm So, so that has to at least come into the narrative, even though I, having said all that would concede that it was very likely more, uh, the case of Stalin wanting to exhaust any resistance Mm -hmm. in Poland, right? A country which he despised. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, and which he saw as absolutely integral to the long-term security of the Soviet state.
1: So something that I feel is kind of overlooked, but it's starting to get more attention now, I think, with the recent Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder, and of course the Iron Curtain they are mentioned quite a lot, and I think you know what what I'm referring to right now is the partisan group, Armia Prajova. So let's talk about them a little bit under German occupation before we move in the way they were treated by soviet soldiers before, yeah the uh, I mean, nation
0: yeah you know part of I, I i teach a fair amount about partisans uh, in part out of interest and partisans generally in in the whole narrative of the second world war you know they're they're often under right the impact and importance of partisan mm-hmm. movements everywhere they're very different as you know right i mean there's so many different partisan groups different sizes shapes different ideologies and so mm-hmm. on Uh, Resistance in Poland throughout the war was really quite extraordinary. Uh, It was responsible for a great deal of important intelligence information that fed the West, intelligence about German uh, military and industrial plants, particularly heavy water, uh, development of atomic bomb, that kind of stuff. Uh, And also really important because uh, pound for pound, Poland suffers more than any country in the Second World War in terms of the loss of life. Right? I think it's one in three Poles. Uh, which is even higher than in the Soviet Union, which is monstrous. Uh, so, you know, you can't begin a discussion about uh, about the Home Army uh, or about any resistance, Jewish resistance too, without this idea of heroism,
1: mm.
0: right? And I know people get uncomfortable with that because then you're down this rabbit hole of was everybody, you know, nice? And were they all in agreement with ideas that we share today? That's not really the domain of a historian, Uh, in so many different ways so you know what we really have to go down to is that this was a home army that was under ruthless occupation from 1939 from the very beginning to the war to the very end of the war and and that so many poles gentiles as much as 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 jews had perished yes this is the scene of extermination camps and it is the scene of uh, of the highest proportion of uh, jewish loss of life and those things are you know, incredibly important should never be forgotten. Uh, it's just there's no but either. It's just that that also we we want to point out that the the ruthlessness of German occupation extended beyond Jewishness. They were oh. ruthless towards you know Gentiles as as well, uh, maybe less so in the sense of uh, extermination and the ghettos and so on. Uh, but but that narrative is important because it does speak to Poland today and it speaks to a lot of Poles. I, I know an awful lot of Polish you know, uh, people uh, here in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, And they do feel that that's a neglected narrative, right, in in Mm. World War II. And understandably, because they were brutalized by the Nazis uh, in so many ways, forced labor, executions, of course, uh, and yet still found the ability, you know, the resolve to fight. Uh, in absolutely unimaginable conditions, I I couldn't imagine being a member of a partisan group anywhere. Frankly, I don't know that I'd have the courage to operate as one. Right, uh, but particularly in places like besieged, occupied Poland, where German you know bureaucracy was absolute, they had ruthless efficiency, in, in almost every single Polish uh, city and town. Uh, so you know, in that light, the Home Army is really remarkable. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, and it's tenacity to fight. And then, yes, of course, it should feel betrayed uh, because it was betrayed. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Even if you want to justify why the Russians don't come into Warsaw uh, faster than they do. Um, the, the reality is, is that they had this expectation, right, knowing the Red Army would come that at least they beat the Nazis. Uh, and and of course, you know, they are bled to death uh, in places like Warsaw and, and elsewhere, uh, but, and it's no consolation, absolutely But, you know, that 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 doesn't necessarily negate the importance that they had throughout the war They kept the Germans at bay in a lot of places The very fact that they're able to operate in Warsaw, you know, as late as 1944 is really extraordinary, mm. right? That You think about the, the ruthless brutality and efficiency of the Nazis uh, And here in the capital city of Poland, they still didn't have full control uh, you know, that that is a testament. That's a feather in the cap to the, to the home army.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, when it comes to the Russians, they didn't know it, of course. The home army couldn't have known it. But, you know, the Russians had already demonstrated, the Soviet uh, army had already demonstrated uh, its own ruthlessness to partisans. It it had mm-hmm. formally liquidated large numbers of partisans in Ukraine and Belarus. Who fought I,
1: I think was, just it wasn't quite legal to be a partisan group either.
0: Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if they were endorsed or, you know, to some degree authorized by the Red Army, as was the case in Ukraine and Belarus, uh, they became likely enemies, right? So if I'm if I'm the Red Army marching into town, the last thing I really want to do is to have to deal with twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 members of the Ukrainian independence movement, uh, you know, who calls itself partisans and got rid of the Nazis, but could very easily turn its guns on me. So in that case, Stalin made it abundantly clear where not all partisans, but how most partisans were be, to be treated, right? They were tolerated by the Red Army. There are some, you know, legendary cases of them operating alongside the Red Army in places like Belarus and Ukraine. But when it comes to Poland, that's a different calculation. These are not Russians. They're not Soviet citizens. Uh, and of course, they're members of a of a nation which was you know, fundamentally hostile to the Soviet Union. So Stalin could care less about them and, and their fate to a large degree is sealed. But last but not least, we also have to point out, as many polls do, that this is a betrayal, not just from the Russian side, but also from the Western Allied side. Mm. Yeah, I thought... like, uh, like Churchill, right, had mm. to some degree sealed their fate uh, during the famous percentages agreement when he meets with Stalin in Moscow in 1944. And, you know, rather infamously jots down on a, on a serviette, on a napkin, you know, jots down the percentages of Eastern European countries that the British are prepared to entertain uh, occupation by Soviet forces. Uh, so that is a betrayal of the, of the, uh, of the free Poles, right? This, this London Poles, as they're called, the free, London, uh, free Polish movement operating in London, uh, who wanted to come back as the legitimate government of that state. And, of course, most Poles right to this day uh, feel that that was a bitter betrayal at Yalta, principally, a bitter betrayal of Polish independence. Uh, And there's a great argument for that, right? I I think there's little doubt. I
1: think it's fair to say, as you you know, after World War II, Hitler's talk a lot about the stab in the back of logic. But I think if it's fair to say that anyone by any war has been truly stabbed in the back, yeah, absolutely I, absolutely. I think they're one of those which I'm fairly saying that I barely say that they will be stabbed in the back.
0: Yeah, and I I would never disagree with that. I think that's pretty strong case that this was a very conscious decision by by particularly Churchill. Mm. There is a but and it needs to be said, as usual. I've got a but for you, but uh and the but is is that uh very sadly for Poland, I don't know that anything else could have happened. And by that I mean, you know, the London polls notwithstanding. Uh, and their and the home army fighting on their behalf. Uh, the reality was that the only way by nineteen forty-four forty-five to to change the outcome into Poland would have been to extend the war against the Soviet Union. Hmm. Something that the Allies were not prepared to do politically or militarily or economically, right? That's how that's how ultimate this gamble is. You know, so so when polls rightly point out that they were betrayed, the 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 only difficulty is to say, well what would you have expected? Because I I can't imagine anything Mm -hmm. short of a massive military campaign by the Americans and the British against the Soviets, Mm -hmm. which is just not going to happen. There's just there's no way it's going to happen in that in that moment. Uh, That would have been the only thing to dislodge them. And that's because the Soviets had no intention whatsoever of leaving Poland. That's that's Mm -hmm. not a negotiating. It never appears in the Russian, uh, you know, mindset. Uh, to negotiate on Poland, you might be able to negotiate on Greece or Turkey or Iran, all places which after World War II, are somewhat divided between, you know, Western and, and Soviet uh, interests, uh, you know, maybe on Austria, maybe on Finland, those are sort of peripheral areas for the Soviet army and for mm-hmm. for Stalin, not Poland. Poland is the corridor through which Russia has been, you know, historically invaded. It's the weak link. Uh, you know, it's that, but it's the worst geographical, you know, position in history, mm. sandwiched between two nightmare neighbors. Can you imagine the yeah. worst place to be, right? Absolutely. So in that in that light, the Soviets have no intention of entertaining an independent Poland, even if Stalin frequently said that they would, right? You know that he said at, mm. at Yalta, he makes some sort of quip, you know, Stalin's attempt at humor. And he's talking about the London Poles and he says, well, you can send them back. Right. Meaning that we'll entertain a, you know, a democratic government or we'll see what happens. you know that he would have shot. I mean, them. they
1: did attempt eventually in the beginning. They did attempt sort of democracy. Maybe. Maybe you know, but, it,
0: uh... but but yeah, but I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't as they, because absent from that experimentation is any genuine intent on the part of Moscow. Mm. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Stalin's cronies, the, the communist polls based in Lublin, you know, didn't want the London polls to come back, they didn't mm. entertain an independent country. And the London polls, by and large, you know, understand that that's their death sentence if they go mm-hmm. back. All of which, as I think, absolutely true, even though we don't know for sure, because it's a similar fate that awaited many people in other occupied countries, right? Romania, Bulgaria, even Czechoslovakia. So with that in mind, the the sad and cruel reality is that uh, while other things may have been negotiable as the war comes to an end, Poland is not among them, not from a Soviet perspective.
1: You mentioned toleration of Armia Krayova partisans, but you also do have stories where they shoot them on sight or even after the war or during, if you find some a person that looks suspicious, he would just get grabbed right off the street. And you have the story of a father working with his child, I think, and he just grabbed off the street in front of his child and killed because he... I think he suppo- I'm not sure if he was a partisan or not, but... he.
0: Because they believed
1: he was a partisan, you know.
0: Yeah. And again, it's not to be at all inhuman about about what you're saying. Uh, Quite the opposite. That is such a normal facet of of, of World War II, right? It's unimaginable to our generations today, especially living in nice democracies. But Mm -hmm. that was the reality. It was the reality in 1939 when Germans came in and they sent you off to camp or forced you into slave labor or, you know, uh, shot you on the street. There, there is no justice. There's, you know, at the very best a facsimile of it. There's like kangaroo courts that that descend. Uh, and that was true. That's a Polish narrative. That's a global narrative, right? It's the Japanese do the same thing to Chinese nationals and so on and so forth. Uh, Russians to everybody else as well. Um, so that, that sort of brutality, that callousness is the hallmark of the second world war and that's where a lot of certainly my students of you know in their early twenties find it so unimaginable because it's just so you know so brutal and so random. But yeah, that that's exactly what happened. If you were a suspect, and this is true in Norway, it was true, mm. you know, if you were suspected of being a Norwegian partisan, yeah, it's not like they really cared for evidence. It's not like they were gonna, you know, try you in a court in Oslo. Uh they're gonna at very least, they're gonna harass you, torture you, beat exactly. you for a discussion and then kill you, right? Like, that's that's the modus operandi of German intelligence, the Gestapo, and the Schutzstaffel, and, you know, any number, one of these uh, horrendous agencies. And very similar on the other side, right? The Soviets exercised the mm-hmm. exact same approach uh, throughout, uh, you know, throughout World War II.
1: Mm. So we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we have to take some time to talk about the mass atrocities committed by Soviet troops are not just the looting but also the mass rape because some women were mass gang raped by soldiers Though so it was illegal they were as horrible as it was tolerated by you You could be at worst jailed for a few days if you were caught but yeah but it was mass rapes going on on the nation by the Soviet soldiers
0: yeah yeah absolutely and and again you know these are unspeakable crimes, but we need to speak about them because they're a complete narrative. They, they at least help complete our narratives of the Second World War. Um, and and you, you hit it on the head, right? We, the Soviets view these, uh, I mean, legally speaking, you weren't supposed to do that. There were edicts from military commanders that said don't do that, uh, but they were not at all enforced. And frankly, they were few and far between relative to, to, you know, what the Soviet army was doing in terms of its advance. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the, the Red Army, of course, the Germans did that, right? The German armies raped and, and brutalized women uh, throughout the Soviet Union as they swept through. We, we can't forget that narrative. It's not, again, a justification for what happens coming the other way. Uh, but that was burned into the Soviet mentality. Right. That these, you know, monsters had murdered millions of our people, raped and and brutalized others. Uh, And it seemed to be fair game. And again, I am really got to be clear about this. Right. It's 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 important for historians to set the context, not to justify anything or explain it the way, you know, explain it away. Mm. Uh, But that that context is important. Most of these men in the Soviet army were between uh, 17 and 21 years old, relatively young. Uh, many of them, is particularly in the advance, were from. Uh, uh, there, there was no setup in the Soviet army to have ethnic divisions. So that's a myth, right? Soviet armies were highly integrated, except for a few units, which were, you know, so like the, the uh, uh, Tatars uh, out of Crimea. Most were integrated. So they were multi ethnic, multi disciplinary. And of course, you're talking about 150 odd ethnic minorities in Russia and languages and so on. Uh, so the reason I bring that up is because many of them came from remote places uh, where one could argue, and I've read these accounts, I'm not saying I would do it myself, but some people say, well, you know, they're terribly uneducated from different parts of largely rural places, now subject to incredible trauma, in some cases their homes destroyed, and in many cases their own women and children murdered or raped or, or uh, killed. Uh, and, and again, not to justify, but you can see that picture, right, mm-hmm. uh, as they move forward of revenge, absolutely. Uh, and this concept being very vulnerable to both communist propaganda and by virtue of mm-hmm. their lack of education, to the idea that this is the spoils of war right? This is what you do when you're a soldier who's victorious. After all, this stuff has happened throughout history. It's not the first time that you see mass rape and conquest. So in the same way that they, you know, pillaged and stole things, uh, they also see rape as a kind of extension of that. Uh, And of course, that is fundamentally brutal and wrong on so many different levels. But commanders are not prepared to dissuade from, from that. The commanders shared a lot of convictions. The Soviet army, you know, was very close in a lot of ways. Commanders who fought uh, were revered by their boys. They're actually called dad, right? So the, oh. the the Russian word is translates into into dad or father. Uh, so if your commander is not telling you, you know, to stop. Uh, then you think it's it's part and parcel. And as a lot of psychologists would weigh in, most of the Russian atrocities are driven not by sexual desire, but by violence, right? These are crimes of violence, as rape always is. Uh, and it's, it's in that sense a kind of, uh, you know, revenge factor. Uh, there are excellent accounts of what the Soviets do when they reach uh, uh, Germany in particular. And as I'm sure you know, there's an estimated, a reported or, or documented to some degree, approximately 2 million rapes, which is staggering, uh, just on the approach to Berlin. So you could probably double or triple that in terms of all the the, the lack of evidence or testimony or recount that we have. Uh, and that's why, you know, one of my, my favorite uh, books of all time is, uh, is A Woman in Berlin, right, written by Anonymous. Uh, which is just a, a, a horrific and harrowing account of, of uh, a woman, a journalist in Berlin. Now, we, we assume that's her identity. Oh. It's still contested. Uh, you know, and, and it's a very curious narrative to show how the Russians did it, you know, what their sort of, the politics, there was a politic to it in terms of how German women tried to survive. It's really a testament to those those women and oh. their strength, you know, to, to withhandle not only the defeat of their nation at war and the emasculation of their men, right? Their men had been defeated, uh, but their survival is remarkable. It's another narrative of the Second World War that needs to be accounted for. Uh, and in no way does it change or justify Soviet, uh, 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 you know, uh, horrors. But yeah, approximately two million women there. I would I would hazard a guess that millions more on the path, including Ukrainians and Poles and and others. Uh, this is a huge army that has suffered tremendously and is defending a nation which has bled very nearly to death. Uh, so there's no restraint. Even Stalin famously quipped, right? That it was he, I think it's his only comment on rape in mm. the war, where he says, You actually expect me to stop them from having their fun.
1: Something yeah.
0: Of, of that, I was
1: throwing right? to the though. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you know, this is not, it, it's just not a priority. And I—and again, that's not my interpretation, but from a military and political perspective, why on earth would, would Stalin care about what a few soldiers do uh, after what they faced and what they're, what they're intending to do? And of course, that's just another, you know, horribly callous and inhuman uh, dimension of the Second World War
1: and of course the, the age if your age didn't even matter if all elder women were raped as it well did. as the teenagers underage girls i'm sure and yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It, it didn't matter the age if you were a communist wife it, no, it, didn't, it didn't matter
0: not at all and and that's where again a lot of experts you know I, I'm, I'm no psychologist for certain, but uh, a lot of them would say, "Well, that that was the sort of another illustration of how these were acts of violence and also of desperation, uh, in many cases of frustration." You know, it's not to legitimize the perpetrator under any circumstances. As I said, "A Woman in Berlin" does a really artful job of describing how a lot of German women. There was a politic to it, right? Uh, they would uh, they would go for commanders if they were going to, you know, have to be. Uh, in these situations if they were going to get raped uh you know many of them tried to get commanders who were generally more powerful and would stop mass rape from happening so they would be raped by one man as opposed to dozens uh there were horrific accounts of a lot of german and and other women scarring themselves to try to look you know uh, less attractive if you like i suppose that's calculation uh but at the end of the day You know, this is an army which is unstoppable in more than just the military means. There is nothing to prevent them uh, from these kind of atrocities. Russians are innately uncomfortable with these conversations. I know I've been barked at by many people who say you can't talk about that, you know, as we're narrating the great patriotic war. And I say that's nonsense you know, what, what kind of a historian would I or anybody be if they, they sort of didn't tell you? It's, that's like saying, you know, the Russians win World War II, and I'm not going to tell you about their occupation of Eastern Europe for the next four decades, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's illogical. So I, I think, yes, this is a great narrative of Russian victory, Russian sac- Soviet victory, Soviet sacrifice, and so on. Uh, but it, it is absolutely imperative to account for their brutality and it's not just the rape of women there's uh, there's enslavement mm. of people there uh, you know the concentration camps that are liberated some of them are put into service immediately for the nkvd And in many cases, the prisoners who were there under the Nazis remained prisoners under the Soviets. Uh, There is, uh, you know, mass deportations that occur. There is random executions of people just because they were, you know, alleged to be partisans, whether it's Polish or Ukrainian or so on. We need to talk about this. And and I think there's no better time than today, where Russia, of course, suffers from a collective delusion led by their their leader. Uh, who is, by the way, and importantly, fascinated with World War II. We we shouldn't forget that. Putin, I I remember a few years ago doing some media when Putin gave this ridiculously long and bizarre speech about how Poland started the Second World War. Mm. And now, of course, in retrospect, you can see how driven this man is by these narratives of how you know Eastern Europe has betrayed him, or the, the historical identity of Ukraine and Poland are questionable, and so on. So today, many Russians have no idea that these atrocities took place, right? And and they it's not, not really... something
1: it's not something taught in schools. That's
0: for sure. It's absolutely not. Yeah, and it's not it's not the only time. I mean, I I do a lot of work on Asia Pacific. It's the same in Japan. A lot of Japanese refuse to acknowledge what their army did in terms of atrocities, uh, you know, massive mm. atrocities, millions of people in China. And I, I, one like, thing that
1: comes close is the rape of 19, of
0: course. There you go. Yeah, Or, or you know, they, they, the so-called comfort women, right? Forced yep. sexual slaves. You know, those, those narratives are not at all addressed in, in modern Japan. So this is not uh, unusual. It's just that, of course, the dimensions of it are staggering when you're looking at, at the Soviet Union. Uh, and that that is illustrative of the kind of occupation that the Soviets intend to deploy throughout Eastern Europe, which is precisely what happens at the end of the war. Well
1: mm-hmm. before we go into the concentration camp, I want to talk a little bit more about atrocities because you know a lot of soldiers would get sexual diseases from these mass rapes. So how, it was it wasn't easy to talk about. You couldn't talk about this if you got a sexual disease from raping a woman. A woman, so you know, yeah. you can just go up to your officers. So, I kind of uh, I kind of got the call as the disease there. What what do I do that? I would it probably would be shot if you maybe not shot, but you wouldn't be would be court martialed that way. That's sure. Could. If you yeah. if you thought about this,
0: so you often didn't talk about it, or in the case of uh, again, I'm no expert on everything to do with you know the Soviet military, but. My understanding is that in a lot of cases, you kept it as quiet as possible, meaning inter-unit. The the Soviets had medics, of course. They were notoriously bad and rudimentary, right, because it wasn't their priority uh, to save wounded soldiers. Um, So you kind of dealt with it as best you could. And and hopefully your commander, where there was some real bonds in most units, there was a, a real bond to a frontline commander. You know, your commander would allow you to get medical treatment or he would not want to know exactly what it was. Right. They would sort of look the proverbial other way uh, because, frankly, everybody would be executed. Right. The, the nature yeah. of, of, you know, sexual conduct or misconduct uh, during war is such that, you know, you, you'd have a hard time keeping your army together. Right. Uh, but yeah, officially, you could. I think there were statutes that you could get uh, uh, some early executed. Uh, but most of the time, the the NKVD, you know, that the commissars of the NKVD were attached to most military units. So you had, you know, your buddies, your soldiers in the field, largely just regular people. And then uh, depending on the size of the unit, there would be a commissar attached to it. And that that was a political officer who was designed to, uh, you know, patrol you guys, right, to make sure that you're, you know, loyal to Stalin and espousing communist rhetoric and so on. Uh, You know, that's a really important part of the Soviet military. What's curious is that in many accounts, and there are quite a few of them, uh, you know, those commissars were isolated, right? The camaraderie of men fighting in the field was quite high. So you know, a lot of times edicts, even about, about political speech, for example, were widely ignored by commanders. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, I, I'm probably going to die tomorrow anyways, so why am I going to give my men a hard time?
1: Mm.
0: That, that's, a, that's what a lot of commanders defied Stalin's orders, right, from the beginning of the war onwards. You just try to not make it uh, too often the case. Uh, but I think when it comes to things like uh, health, and even on occasion, you know, political speech, like I said, some military commanders would intervene. They weren't always on side with the, with the apparatchiks or uh, the bureaucrats or the, uh, the commissars in the field. So I think most of the men who contracted diseases, uh, you know, were, were treated as best as possible or waited until the end of the war, frankly, endured whatever ailment they had, gonorrhea, syphilis or whatever, as long as they could. Uh, that's not the case for desertion. Right. So uh, some crimes were, you know, a bullet in the head. They they had one called the uh the nine uh the ninth solution, if I'm not mistaken in Russian, which is the size millimeter size of a bullet. So, you know, justice was summary when it came to things like desertion or cowardice. Sexual crimes not on the same par, they were widely ignored.
1: So let's talk about you talked about it a little bit before, but let's talk about the concentration camps. And the liberation, because as you know, Himmler did liberate a few like Auschwitz in hope to negotiate with the allies of with the prisoners from these concentration camps. But, of course, before he killed himself, ended up killing himself. But let's talk about it because it wasn't a joyful
0: liberation.
1: They were cheered on when they liberated these concentration
0: camps. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can actually see, I show photographs of it. Um And you can even see in some of those photographs the astonishment of Soviet commanders as they reach places like Auschwitz, uh, which is really harrowing. I mean, you can imagine anyways, you know, the nature of these camps. We all should and must try to imagine them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, But when I when I see Soviet commanders, it, it, it reaches a new level because these were men that had seen the worst of the worst. You know, they had endured their own country being burned to the ground and rape and murder and, and death on a on a scale that no country can imagine. And yet still they were astonished at the, the existence of these camps. That's really revealing. Right. And some Russian accounts have that. Right. There's some, you know, journalists like Vasily Grossman and others who, you know, wrote about that kind of reaction. Um I think that's in part because many of them couldn't imagine, which is kind of weird when you figure that there were death camps and disappearances and deportations in the Soviet state that they had grown up with, Uh, but still they managed to shock. Uh, And yeah, you know, they are liberated. And in a lot of cases, uh, you know, that liberation is, is genuine in the sense that the Soviets, which could also and had been very anti Semitic uh, in their own right, mm-hmm. uh, during the Second World War, that anti Semitism dropped off right out of practical necessity. So, you know, being Jewish in the front lines wasn't, uh, being a, a Red Army soldier, for example, who was Jewish, wasn't necessarily a, a problem or anything like that. Uh, So, you know, this is a very multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious army that that reaches the camps. And I I think that sense of shock and of of revulsion is quite genuine. Uh, And they are relatively, at least to some, you know, that liberation is real. People are allowed to return to their homes if they exist and their families if they exist. Uh, The sinister part, is that particularly if you were of a political bend, if you were deemed dangerous by the Soviets in any way, uh, your re was assured, right? So not at Auschwitz or Treblinka or camps that had been largely dismantled and destroyed, uh, but at other camps like, uh, like uh, 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 Sachsenhausen in Berlin, uh, I think within weeks of liberation in April 1945 is a Soviet detention camp. Camp 21 or something renamed. So, you know, the, the sad reality is is that the Soviets, uh, with full intent, uh, are coming with the same sort of persecution in mind towards at least some of them, mostly political, that's for sure, uh, certainly German, uh, but also, you know, nationalists or resistance fighters if you fell into their category. Uh, so the liberation of camps is astonishing and shocking. But but that brings us to this point, which is we can't forget that the machinations of a guy like Stalin and his commanders are to some degree quite separate from the the, the boys in the field. right? Mm-hmm. These were just average boys. like they were doing an incredible and and you know astonishing thing in their war effort. But they were still nineteen year old kids from farms in you know Ukraine or whatever. Uh, and the shock of, of humanity, I think, uh, of the scale of their suffering, uh, you know, really does reach them that's that's evident in some Russian accounts of what the Nazis had done and so on. What's missing, of course, is is the official narrative from the Soviet Union, which acknowledges German crimes, but none of their own, right so They mm-hmm. refuse to have this discourse. Uh, so yeah that that is quite revealing and and it does lead, of course, much like in the Western Allies pos- position to a, a, a commitment for revenge right, on mm-hmm. the German people, not just yeah. for their own losses, but on behalf of these crimes against humanity.
1: And something we haven't discussed so far is that when the soldiers entered uh, beyond Poland, um, we are going to draw on to to the other side a little bit, but I want to discuss this first, is that, you know, the so- Soviet soldiers were angry, you know, because why would they invade so the Soviet Union, when they saw how much nicer things the Germans and Western Europe had, that where yeah. they didn't have, you know, so they were angry at
0: the Germans. Yeah, why why sure. would you?
1: Why would you attack us, you know?
0: Yeah, that that is a sentiment. A lot of Russian soldiers were astonished. I just wouldn't say that was their lead sentiment. I mean, I think I think by that point, it's hard to you know narrate for millions of people one collective response or or, you know idea right you're talking about 12 million russian soldiers by that point i'm sure there are 12 million different opinions on a lot of things uh most the top of the list uh certainly relief right relief that this is over or coming to an end uh optimism and hope as almost every human being would have that their loved ones are still there that they can return to some sense of normalcy uh, and then down the line, of course, a consideration of, oh, my God, why would you attack us? I come from a poor village that doesn't have a road to it. And here you are living in relative opulence, right, and modernity, um, but but of course, they were unable to see the why. They didn't fully understand the ideological perversions of the German state. They didn't, you know, had any exposure to uh, concepts of Lebensraum or of Aryan supremacy. They they had no notions of, or very few notions of Hitler's uh, intentions, and they also didn't really understand the military, strategic, economic uh, uh, factors that led to the invasion of the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, And of course, as we all know, it was two things. It was that design for, uh, you know, uh, conquest, imperial conquest, vast economic resources to turn the Soviet Union into basically a giant farm uh, for the expansion of of German people uh, and for the Dutch, the the idea of a larger Germany, uh, but also simultaneously a racial uh, cleansing, a racial and ethnic cleansing. Annihilation of entire Slavic people. There you go. They, they And their enslavement or execution. So they couldn't have possibly known all of that. But, yeah, there are accounts of Russian soldiers astonished. And it's usually vetted out, of course, in the most violent of ways, right, and through rape and through summary executions uh, and through pillaging. Right. Mm-hmm. People stole stuff as much as they could, not just individual soldiers, but as I'm sure, you know, the Red Army as a whole, right? So the, one of the first things it does everywhere it sets up shop in Eastern Europe is to grab everything that's valuable, you know, personal beholdings all the way to state, uh, infrastructure, uh, because Stalin wants that to happen. He wants this to be uh, a kind of repayment for the Russian war effort, economic and, and otherwise. Uh, and also it's much needed in a state that has, has, yes, won the Second World War, but, but drained itself so sizably of all of its resources. So, you know, the responses in that frustration and question that you're asking uh, is, again, the idea of a ruthless response.
1: So we talked a lot about the Soviet side, and this is very much about the Sovietization of Berlin. Now, of course, also we want to talk about the last days in the Fero banka I feel it's important to talk about yeah. as well, of course, it yeah. famously portrayed in the Untergang. But let's talk about the last few days in the of banka
0: yeah, I mean sheer terror is the the general description for uh Germans, not necessarily oh. Hitler, uh but for the German people because the reality is painfully obvious to them. Um, you know, that most of the Russian advance had been sanitized by virtue of propaganda until you get to the, you know, Vistula Oda campaign, right, where the oh. the Russians pour in and and you know, make headlong rapid gains across uh, the two rivers, and then sit outside of Berlin. And and when that happens, you know, certainly by April of 1945, everybody knows the end is nigh. Russians uh, shell the city uh, in such fashion that, you know, it's hard to imagine. They're, of course, bombing it too. Uh so most Berliners were terrified. There was mass number of refugees from German holdings in the East. Uh it's chaos in so many different ways. And yet it's also this ridiculous picture. As as movies like uh uh Gang show, uh there's also this bizarre, you know, sort of tragic play that's going on where Hitler and the commanders still imagine that there are armies in the field, right? You yeah. know famously he was commanding armies that, that basically didn't exist anymore right he's giving orders to steiner's ar- ar- army and steiner has long given up the ghost mm. uh so you know there's that added tragic thing that the sense of arrogance and and superiority so deep in germany that most people imagined some sort of you know heroic uh, victory that the hand of god would deliver them uh but most commanders were acutely aware that the end was coming very very fast so the only you know there's no good news for Germans of course but but mm. importantly their defiance is a very real and important thing like even though the odds are pretty much done or your fate is sealed still people show up to defend berlin right mm. you know famously women and children right mm. you know you have 13 year old kids in the in the home army now defending german state old men you know wounded soldiers uh, and the madness that follows is really quite acute. It's one of the many reasons I'm so interested in these narratives. Uh, you know, even with victory at hands, the Russians still waste human life to get Berlin, right? 70,000 Russian soldiers die in the siege of Berlin, which is a monstrous amount of men for any army. For Russia, maybe a pittance compared to their other losses. Uh, But that shows you the the bizarre nature of the end of the war. Why would you commit so many men to house to house, street to street fighting in a city full of rubble, defended by teenagers with, you know, uh, virtually no weapons? And and that speaks fundamentally to the the Soviet design Mm. on victory, on, you know, punishing the German state, on being the first to the German capital. All really important things, but not any more needed you know full well by that stage uh eisenhower the supreme commander of allied forces had basically said we don't want berlin right so there's no real imperative uh for the russians to spend that kind of life uh, but they do and it's the same on the german side like like certainly you know it speaks to the ideological conviction the perversion of the german state that you would still have young girls coming out to, to fight against Russian soldiers in the streets of Berlin. It's utterly bizarre. Uh, and then the rats leave the ship, right? Most tellingly, most senior commanders and, and political officials either took their own lives or got the hell out. So the cowards are gone. And what's left are these, you know, really desperate and very poor Berliners who somehow think, you know, victory can be salvaged if they, if they go into the streets with a pistol you know against uh, russian armies it's an unbelievable tragedy uh mm. and it is a city of rubble right so like I, I i always show my students images of berlin i taught in berlin i, I lived in berlin and i i show them the images of berlin in 1945 and it is literally a city of rubble there's there's it's unimaginable what's there to defend or to conquer so yeah, in the bunker, of course, you have the the architect of, of uh, madness there, of doom in Hitler, oh. uh, you know, giving commands to fictitious armies, imagining a post-war German state, and then simultaneously in his drug-induced uh, state of mind, uh, imagining some sort of legacy out of this. But to the end, prepared to commit his people to death and destruction, oh. right? He had no respect for his own people. You know, famously, he... he allegedly, at least to survivors uh who recounted it, you know, went on about how the German people brought this on themselves because they were inadequate, they didn't fight hard enough, they're not as superior as we thought. Utter sheer madness, so yeah, bullet in the head uh and that's a that's a that's about the best fate that he could have possibly imagined because of course, yeah. if the Russians had got him, it would have been a a much crueler fate than that, yeah. but not before he he you know condemned even more people to the grave, right oh. This is what you get as a ruthless dictator, uh, harrowing moments and well documented in a lot of cases. I hope you're not going to ask me about conspiracy stuff, whether or not, you know, it's actually... <laughs> that... but, uh, yeah, no, I'm tempted to,
1: but... Yeah, I don't think...
0: Nothing is true along those lines. I I think, you know, what we have is what we have. He shot himself, uh, you know, a mm-hmm. body is... The he they, have a brown
1: before.
0: they have a brahm, their dog, you know, the whole nine yards. Uh More interesting to me are the other rats uh, that leave the ship, uh, as it were, you know, your guys like Himla and Going and others who try to flee uh and and you know what better example of the cowardice of the nazis at the end of the day than heinrich himmler the supreme oh. commander of the ss you know trying to dress up like a civilian and run away with refugees right before he's oh. caught so you know the dying days are absolutely uh, illustrative of the of the the madness of the german state the hubris of hitler uh and, of course, the price that the Soviets are still prepared, the vengeance, the hatred. the uh, I mean, listen, I, 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 again, I, having taught in Berlin, I led classes out into the field, right, as part of your course. And you show them, you know, the Fjallbanka, uh, which is now commemorated by a small plaque. Uh, and it's adjacent to a parking lot for a residential complex, right? So it's the most, you know, sort of innocuous place in the world. Down the street is a kindergarten, you know, where one of the entryways used to be. People are shocked, like they often say, "Why isn't this commemorated morning? Yeah. How do you commemorate the Nazis with, yeah. with any sort of sense of dignity but uh there's a certain poetic nature to that, uh all the tragedy and all notwithstanding and then i I remind them that you know around every corner, every mailbox that we see on the street, Soviet soldiers fought over rubble to be the first to claim to make it to the Bunker, to, to make it to the chancellery in the mm. Bunker. And 70,000 of them spent their lives. So the, the Siege mm. of Berlin speaks not just about German hubris and German arrogance and, and German defeat, but also about the the you know commitment and the mm. madness of the Soviets uh, to take a city full of rubble.
1: Mm. And I've got to ask, of course, before we move on to the victory parade, how accurate do you think? That underground portrays, and it's a I feel like it's a must see movie, but how accurately do you feel like it portrays the final days of Hitler and the world second world War?
0: Yeah, you know what I actually really love that film. i'm I'm hypercritical of most films. you know that one makes some mistakes too, and again, I'm no you know movie guy and no expert on on every minute detail. but my understanding from my own opinion as well as talking to other people who study this stuff is that it's quite good in portraying the last days. Uh, now, you know, that being said, it is the last days as largely accounted for, uh, from his secretary, right? So there's a kind of, you know, broken telephone process here, but, um, in terms of what I really liked about that movie, uh, is not just the, the portrayal of Hitler himself, uh, which I think was a great acting job. Uh, not everybody would agree, but I, I thought so, but the precision, I noticed that in the scenes of the bunker when, when they, uh, you know, mm. when uh, uh, Gober's uh, family is killed, when the dog, uh, you know, Hitler's dog is killed. Somebody had the presence of mind to move the clock on the wall to mm. the, the times that we know it actually happened. Right. So there, from mm. a movie making perspective. I thought it was quite accurate. And then I really liked the portrayal of the Soviet soldiers. You don't see them much, but in the in the closing scenes, the secretary yeah. tries to leave. Yeah.
1: The much walks them out the job. Yeah and, yeah. and
0: while it's, you know, it's a little bit stereotypical uh, to have drunk Russians in, in the milieu, that certainly happened. Uh, their faces are are really extraordinary. There's the, the director or producer, or whoever, had the presence of mind to remember that that army was a, a a polyglot army, right? It's a bunch of different ethnic minorities, Kazakhs and Tatars and, you know, Azeris and so on, uh, all very young and, of course, very Uh, jubilant about victory and uncertain what to do so there's a lot of sort of you know minute human uh, factors that i quite liked in portraying it Uh, and it does stand as one of the the sort of better movies to account for that Um, but you know we don't know absolutely every last moment in the bunker i don't know that we ever will but contrary to some conspiracy theories you know there are pretty well documented accounts so i am not one of those guys that will tell you hitler's skull is really in a A museum in the Kremlin hidden away from public purview or that there's an elaborate tunnel system underneath, you know, that has real Nazis living in it or something like that. Uh, That doesn't make much sense. What does make sense is the Russians taking the chancellery and then, of course, taking the Reichstag and, and leveling Berlin, at least from their perspective. Uh, occupying Berlin and killing as many Nazis as possible. That's their objective and the job is done, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so in that light it, it kind of amazes me what people go on and on about. Uh, to some newspapers here at least, you know tabloid as they are Hitler's still alive in Peru somewhere mm-hmm. he's now what, you know, 207 or something like that but uh, you know, the facts are the facts. He would, the
1: facts. Have 90, uh, would have been 90, I calculated, would have been 90 in 1970,
0: so yeah, he's, you know, long dead and, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. Uh, even some of the guys who got away, right, some of the German officials that we never mm. heard from again, you know, now through a lot of exhaustive research and, and analysis, most of them are being found right dead, of mm. course, as a result of the war. So I, I like the facts a lot more. And in that sense, there's more than enough in in, uh, in World War Two from a Soviet perspective to, to keep us asking questions and finding mm. things out for hundreds of years to come.
1: Hmm. And of course let's talk about the infamous victory parade that was arranged after we don't have time to go into the Nuremberg trials or anything like that today, yeah. unfortunately. But the just ship directly to the victory parade in Moscow. And it's it's actually available on YouTube to watch. And after this episode you should absolutely watch it on YouTube. It's a fascinating piece of film. Yeah. So so let's talk about when I don't believe it was Sukhov who was riding a horse, was was it? that it was raining nothing as well. So let's talk yeah. about the Victory Parade at the end. Yeah,
0: well, it's, it's legendary, right? Uh, you know, there is the main Victory Parade, and of course there are a lot of smaller ones, right, which don't capture as much attention. Um, and, you know, it's massive, right? It's, it, it's, mm. it's sort of, it's a shadow of the war itself, this massive enterprise. It's artful in a lot of ways. Uh, It's exhaustive in representing all the different units and the different uh, services and and the role of women. Uh, There's a couple of exceptions, right, for, you know, for people that aren't allowed to uh, partake. Uh, You know, partisans are not uh, terribly well, you know, documented for political reasons. Some other groups are also omitted. Uh, But this is really a triumph, you know, for Joseph Stalin, a man who had in effect lost the war, now gets to preside. Uh, And it is extremely important for the Soviet Union because of the sacrifice, keeping in mind, of course, that the full dimensions of its sacrifice were not known to its own people yet, let alone to the outside world. Uh, And it is an opportunity to demonstrate the teeth that the Soviet had. We should never forget that, right? Victory parades aren't just celebratory and innocent. Uh, It is designed to remind the Russian people of their greatness uh, and to remind any outsiders if they you know, are able to see it uh, or hear of it, that this is a Soviet victory and that the Soviet Union is now, as you well know, already by 1945, uh, at great odds with the Western allies, right? We have the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, And then there's a further politic to it, right? On On the, you know, on the podium, the question is who stands with Stalin, right? Because whoever stands with Stalin gets Sanction as a sort of architect of victory, and you're probably you know well aware as most people are that Stalin was not comfortable having zukov their their fame you know, uh, mm. uh, Zhukov, their famous general you know on the podium because he didn't want to share in this victory mm. right uh, the reality is is Stalin, who was an active military commander more than most uh made some horrendous mistakes in the beginning of the war and then somewhat quietly uh, as the war progressed, started to defer more to his generals, uh, Zhukov, top of the list. So many people, of course, recognized him as the real hero of the Soviet Union. uh, And that becomes a problem, right? So commemoration is now a new battlefront, if you like, from a Soviet perspective. How do you monument these things? How do you deal with it? Uh, And frankly, it's still much more so than in the Western uh, world those kind of commemorations and those parades, you know, every May are still really important. I've been to some myself, right. In, in Russia. Uh, And yeah, even if they're now devoid of actual veterans, uh, those parades are really elemental to uh, Russian national identity. Right. So it's, it's, it's a very long lasting effect, but that is a great parade and it is something to hold and to watch. Uh, It just doesn't speak the full narratives of either, Russian losses, uh, of Russian incompetence, or of the Russian brutality hmm. uh, that they inflicted themselves.
1: Hmm. Now, before we round up, we talked about a lot of the atrocities and rape of the innocent women in the in, in during the invasion. And I want to talk about this a little bit before we round up. But of course, what we don't, didn't talk much about what they left behind but on their road to victory. So let's talk about the aftermath of these women who were. Victims of these rape mass rapes that occurred, yeah. and some you know some shot themselves, some couldn't, yeah, yeah, and yeah. But what happened to a lot of those? And how were they? Because I'm seen a lot did give birth to no offsprings from these soldiers as a result of the rape as well. So let's talk a little bit about yeah, the, the women that were left behind.
0: before well, those are those out. are yeah those are excellent questions that that's part of this idea that I, I keep bringing up about narratives that we need to explore uh, and that's true globally it's not just in the Russian context you know how many comfort women under Japanese rule gave birth or oh. you know were, were uh, in other ways um, you know victims of the war uh, there's no simple answer the, the fact is is that in places like Germany there were no resources for them resources as you and I would find them today there was no counseling no medical care really to speak of so they were largely left to their own uh and in many cases that meant to their neighbors and friends right who who would help them medically and psychologically as best as possible a uh, lot divided
1: viewed? Well, it was down upon by by the fellow
0: absolutely yeah there's a there's a there's a, a psychological process that goes on for for many years right the stigma mm-hmm. that's attached to them in some cases, it's because they were deemed to be collaborationists, right? It was the yeah. same you know, for other populations. Norway's no different. If a Norwegian yeah. woman had been raped by a German soldier, she mm-hmm. was thought to be a collaborationist, right? She, uh, she so- dated,
1: if a Norwegian girl dated the soldier, she was told yeah. she was thrown upon for the rest of her life.
0: Absolutely. And, and in some cases, themselves. they were you know, publicly humiliated, in many cases beaten, some cases killed. Right. That's a repeat uh, episode throughout occupied Europe, France, Holland. It doesn't matter. Uh, in this particular case, you know, in the devastation of, uh, of Germany, there's really no resources for them. So they're highly dependent upon their own circle of friends. Some killed themselves. You're absolutely right. Uh, others just pretended like it didn't happen. So they tried to blend back into a state of normalcy. We shouldn't forget that many of these women, um, where they had husbands or partners, sometimes even brothers or fathers, you know, they they didn't often come home, right? So sometimes these women had the uh, additional burden of not knowing if their partner, brother, father was alive. Uh, And there's a really big element here that I always talk about, which is the emasculation of the, the German manhood. Right. Germany's defeat wasn't just a military and political thing. It also was, in effect, a social cultural thing. Uh, So women had to be unbelievably strong and resilient. And they were like in in post-war Berlin, the the vast majority of work being done on the streets, you know, cleanup and everything else was done by the so-called Trummenfrauen in German, the rubble women, because they live in the rubble. They live off the rubble. You know, they rebuild the city. And you can't I can't imagine the the the, you know, the horrors, much like women in Moscow or Stalingrad or other places had to endure unspeakable conditions. So did the women of Berlin with that additional thing of defeat. Uh, So, yeah, there's a mixed variety. Some wrote about it. Right. Some, you know, didn't talk about it for a long time and then tried to, to talk about it. Uh, others just tried to blend right back in but I, I can't you know neither in a general sense nor obviously as not being a woman I can't imagine uh, what they went through psychologically yeah. and politically but yeah they were shunned right and a lot of people were shunned by that association uh, whether or not it was hmm. voluntary is immaterial
1: hmm. I think it was a rather dim, dim point of view to dim, dim part to round it up and but I think we're going to end this here is so much more we can discuss on this topic. I'm sure I will revisit it sometime in the future as well. Sure. But uh before we go, do you have anything you want to promote on the social media where people might find you if they want to know more? Any books you want to share with us that are links in the in the description that you want me to share. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do I want to share anything? Is yeah. there to... Sure. Well, they can listen. They're always, I'm I'm always open. My email is out there. You can, well, you have it. (laughs) You can Mm -hmm. post it. Uh, I have a website. I don't I'm going to develop a better one uh, as I'm trying to become more media savvy, but I'm always open to dialogue and discussion. I get a lot of people from around the world. Uh, I do a fair amount of media. I do a lot of TV shows here in North America, oddly enough on the Nazis. Mm -hmm. uh, Um, so you know, I can refer them to that, uh, and I've written quite a lot as well. So uh, you know, I'm always available. I'm always interested in these discourses, especially international, right? I so like you know talking to people from all over the world. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty out there, and I I always welcome discourse of any kind. Uh, sometimes I'm slow to get back to it, so you can tell you're. Your listeners, I, I got testify like, to that. One. Like any, topic. <laughs> yeah, but, but here I am, right, voluntarily. Yes. Here I am. So you know, sooner or later. But I like it. I get a lot of. Uh, I had somebody a couple of weeks ago from France mm. email me about some personal possessions they had from Hermann Goering, right? The, the, oh. the so. It's a curious mix of things. I get a lot of academic questions. I, I get a lot from students. Around the world, and and for the most part, I'm very happy to engage in in discourse uh, anytime on this topic or others. And the only thing I'd say is that that listen, this is the time more than any other time. You know, as the world is in war and and uh, a war that is largely orchestrated by Russia, this is the time that we should start exploring these histories even more than before, because there's a lot of historical elements. Uh, to, Absolutely, is madness. So you know, stuff like this that you're doing is great. I wish we did this a lot more often.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for coming on, Arden. It's been My a pleasure. pleasure. And before you. this is been a Well, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. If you want, another time, please just write a little review on Apple or iTunes. That would help us a lot. Well. You check us out on social media on Twitter and. Instagram, h 12 My name is Alan. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.